How do we become more self-aware of how stress, physiological and psychological, it manifests in the same way? How do we uh, become more self-aware of what is affecting us and how it's affecting us? And then how do we better self-regulate? Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high-performance mind, body and lifestyle. So I'm really excited to welcome a second time guest back to the show here on High Performance Health. It is Dr. Jay Wiles, who is a co- the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Hanu Health, which is a new device I'm playing with. I'm uh, very excited to, to hear all about this today. First of all, a very warm welcome, Jay. It's great to have you back. Yeah, it's great to be back, Angela. Always enjoy the conversations with you. Yeah, really excited. Thank you. Um, not not everyone will have listened because it was some time ago when we recorded the first episode all about HRV, but I do recommend people go back and listen to that. Um, but let's kick off, first of all, with what HRV is for listeners and, and why it's so important. Yeah, you know, this is something I've, I've been on a few podcasts recently where I'm like, you know what, I get the question of what is HRV, like my mind spins like in a thousand directions. And so I've kind of had to ask myself, like, why does my head spin in a thousand directions? And if my head spins in a thousand <laughs> directions, why does like the, what does the lay person think about HRV? And I'm like, you know what, the lay person is probably going to stick with the easiest definition that they can, which only makes sense for me, because I understand the nuances and complexities of HRV my head goes everywhere. So I've kind of like formulated more or less an easier definition to understand. And then I like to unpack it. And I like to kind of like keep things uh, more simplistic than complex initially, just because the complexity of HRV could make for not just a you know three, four hour podcast, but really an entire degree. So what I'll do is just really start very 30,000 foot view on HRV, because in the end, what heart rate variability is, or HRV, it's nothing but a proxy. And so when we say a proxy, what I'm talking about is that heart rate variability is the single greatest non-invasive proxy that we have to examine or look at the shifts that we have in our autonomic nervous system, which is representative of shifts or change in our response to stress. So heart rate variability in and of itself is a data point. It is a proxy. A lot of people see it as a data point, but they don't understand what it means within its own context. And I think that's where HRV starts to get really, really confusing. But if you wanted to kind of just wipe the slate clean and understand what it is, it gives us a snapshot, or at least it has been previously. We'll talk about how there's mechanisms, not for a snapshot, but actually to see it over time continuously now with what Hanu is, but really what HRV is currently, it's a snapshot that looks at the state or shift change in your autonomic nervous system, which is representative of changes in your overall stress resiliency or in your human or in the human stress response. But my guess is, Angela, you probably want me to unpack it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, just so people, because I think when I'm speaking to people, and I know even myself, right, you can get really competitive because I think people kind of inherently know that 
higher should be better. And, and I remember when we were speaking last time, and this has stayed with me because it gives me a great degree of comfort when, when mine isn't always where I want it to be, about you talking about the fact that actually, you know, a very well-trained athlete may have a very high heart rate variability, but if they can't modulate it, it's not that good. Whereas someone else may have a lower one, but they can take meaningful steps and change it. But I think people do get hung up on the fact that why is it so low? Why can't, can't I get it higher? And you can almost become competitive with it, which let's face it, is going to be the wrong way to increase it, right? It's probably not going to work. For sure. You know, there, there's so many things, especially for high performers uh, that we can be competitive with because we have the ability to somewhat have like a normative comparison. And what I mean by that, I think about different biometrics. Um, so when you think about blood pressure or you think about triglycerides or you think about cholesterol, there are some, for the most part, normative ranges for these types of biometrics. So we kind of know, like, here's the range of where you quote unquote should be. And that will depend on if you're talking to, you know, more of a conventionally minded, let's say practitioner or, you know, a functional medicine practitioner where those baseline normal ranges are, you know, that's a kind of a topic for a different discussion. HRV just doesn't work that way. We don't have this set framework that says you should be within this range. Otherwise, like your health is compromised or there's something off or there's something wrong. So we can't compare what we say normatively, which is to others or within people who are kind of within our same demographic. So for me, it would be like mid thirties male. Like we don't have that range. We do because we have a ton of data point, but what we're, data points, I should say. But what we're finding is that if we try to compare normatively, so between people who are kind of like us or between or against a, a data set of people who are like us, is that those numbers really are kind of comparing apples and oranges. And that's because it's really the shifts in our nervous system or really the shifts or changes that we see amongst our own data that's most important. So back to your point, one of the things that we have found both in the literature and then also in working with an immense amount of clientele is that because HRV is the single greatest non-invasive proxy that we have for shifts in the human nervous system and in our human stress response, what we know about that is that it's the stability of that number that is most important as opposed to kind of us comparing to, to others. Again, this is apples and oranges. So let me unpack this a little bit more because I think I can make it very simple for people to understand. If you're looking at HRV and you start to see extreme fluctuations, people might ask, what does an extreme fluctuation mean or look like? We're talking about significant percentage shifts. So let's say I'll use very easy numbers to understand that my baseline range of, of HRV is right at 100 milliseconds. So again, is that good or bad? We don't really know. But if I see that my HRV has dropped 40% and then another 40% and then another 40% from day to day to day, we see a very steep downward trend. Well, what does that mean? That means that something is really taxing my nervous system. Uh, because again, remember, this is a proxy for shift or state change of my nervous system. Something's really impacting it. Could it be exercise? Could it be what I'm eating? Could it be that I'm coming down with a sickness or an ailment? Uh, could it be really intensive psychological stress? Could it be extremely poor sleep? All within context, we can figure out kind of what is the culprit? What is the thing that's causing change here? Now, that is much more important than where I started, which was 100 milliseconds. 
Act. And the reason why it's so much more important is because we now have context as to what is causing that change, or at least if we do some digging, we have the context there. Whereas if we just look at a simple sole number of HRV, it really doesn't kind of give us any information. It's kind of like if I uh, provide you with uh, data coordinates and you see the actual data coordinates, for most people, unless they're just like extremely knowledgeable about data coordinates, they're going to look at it and say, uh, yeah, these just look like numbers. Whereas then if we throw them into a GPS, okay, now we have context. Now I see where this is, where it's located, what's around it, and everything starts to make sense. A lot of biometrics are like that, but HRV is especially like, like that um, in that you have to have the context and the framework because the number by itself doesn't really get us give us that much information. So yeah, it's all about how much uh, are we seeing fluctuations away from our quote unquote normal baseline range. And then lastly, to your point, again, how well do you have control over that? So if you do see that someone has, let's say an HRV of 100, when you put them under a task of saying, how much control do you have over your nervous system? And the easiest way to find out is by slowing your breathing to see how much this affects overall HRV and heart rate. If we see that the numbers are slightly moving in an upward direction, then that's a good sign. That means, okay, well, now the nervous system is responding to something it should be responding to, which is slow-paced breathing or breath work. But, but if you then look at the next person who has, let's say, the same baseline of 100, and then they start to increase or so, sorry, decrease their breathing rate, and we see HRV significantly increase, then okay, they went from 100, let's say, to 125, 130. Well, this person looks like they have a better autonomic control over their nervous system than the person who just moved it up two or three or four points. Or maybe the person who only was able to move it up two or three points at that given time, their nervous system was getting more taxed with that breathing practice because of some maybe external condition. Maybe they were in a bad mental headspace. Uh, maybe their body was just recovering from the sauna that they just did or the workout they just did. So this is why it's so incredibly important that if we are taking a measurement of HRV, we have so many other different data points that we're mm. weaving into this narrative and into this story because that number alone, for the most part, I don't want to overspeak, but I'm okay with saying this given everything I just set up for this. That number by itself is kind of useless. It doesn't give us a lot of information unless it is woven into the narrative and we piece the puzzle together. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, I mean, for example, Peter Atier, I think, has publicly said, you know, my HRV is is pretty low. He did some years ago and um, uh, sort of a couple of years ago. Now, if you have people who say it's inherently low, it's like 30 to 40, so it's nowhere close to 100. Do you believe that everybody can increase it to those kind of levels? Or do you think, is that what you found? And I'm going to come on to Hanu, which is this amazing uh, device that you've developed. But you know, can everyone get there or is that I'm just wondering whether there's genetic or physiological differences between people in terms of what that baseline might be as a starting point and where you can go, where that trajectory is. Yeah, there are absolutely 100% genetic components in regards to people's baseline HRV, 100%. So we know this uh, from plenty of published research studies that there are genetic variants as well as uh, components related to basic demographics, sex, um, the height is another, another one. I always say that mm. we see that white, white males who are tall, uh, and, and fit and generally fit 
typically have a much higher HRV than individuals who are not within that demographic. So I'm like, I kind of got set up, you know, for a quote unquote better HRV just because I'm a white male who is six foot five. So I'm really tall. Um, so height is actually a component. Genetics are a component. Um, sex is a component. These are certainly things that we are powerless over. We cannot change, uh, but are going to affect our overall HRV. So we do have to take that into, into consideration 100%. Can people, though, with different strategies, raise their baseline HRV? The answer to that is a 100% absolutely yes. So we actually know that the greatest contributor, so the single greatest contributor to overall baseline HRV is cardiorespiratory fitness. So as we increase people's VO2 max, as people increase overall cardiorespiratory fitness, we see a upwards trend, the most significant upwards trend in baseline heart rate variability. Now that is not the only mechanism for raising HRV. And I'll speak to the, the other mechanisms here, but that that, that is that is the greatest way. So the reason that this is happening and we, why we know exercise is so inextricably intertwined with, with HRV is because as we increase overall cardiorespiratory fitness, we're increasing the overall strength of our heart, we're decreasing overall baseline heart rate, and that overall increases heart rate variability. The other thing that we're doing is that we're increasing what's called baroreflex sensitivity. Baroreflex sensitivity is our body's ability to regulate blood pressure under basically all conditions. We know that people who have hypertension or high blood pressure, they, while they have a baroreflex that works, it is less sensitive than those individuals who have a higher HRV and a lower blood pressure, or at least baseline um, uh, average or quote unquote good blood pressure. So their, their baroreflex sensitivity, these people with hypertension, it changes over time. It's basically the thermostat changing over time. It becomes less sensitive and blood pressure stays higher. With better cardiorespiratory fitness, we know that baroreflex sensitivity will increase, decreasing heart rate, decreasing blood pressure, or at least allowing it to uh, fluctuate accordingly and regulate accordingly. And that increases overall heart rate variability and the ability to for you to engage in better autonomic control or better control over your nervous system at will or with volition. So I, I tell people that if you want to really focus on increasing overall baseline heart rate variability, can you get it from 30 and 40 to 100? I've seen it done. But what I will say is that I think if the, I think it's a mindset thing and a priorities thing. If the goal is for you to go from 30 to 40 milliseconds to 100, I actually think that that's the wrong goal. I think the right goal is how can I better train resiliency within the nervous system to recover faster, um, to modulate better, and to just uh, to be in more control of that aspect. I think that is the goal. But if you see the baseline range starting to increase, well, that's kind of like the icing on the cake. Mm. And it's it's a level of demonstrating like, yeah, there's there's some efficacy to what I'm doing. I have seen plenty of individuals go from like a baseline of 30 or 40 up to, you know, 60, 70, 80, and 90. But I think removing that expectation and having more of the expectation of developing good control over your nervous system for all the health, well-being, and longevity reasons for that, I think that is the most important and valuable aspect. And then secondarily, it's just nice to see that upward trend. 
And with the, um, that's really interesting. I love that. It's actually very similar when you look at people who, you know, want to achieve goals. They think it's about the end goal that you're getting to. And that if they just kind of push harder, that's going to get them there faster. Whereas actually it's becoming the person that achieves the goal that gets you there quicker. And it's that growth journey. And then you sort of almost achieve the goal by default. And it sounds that's very similar with HRV. So if you actually work on your resiliency, uh, yes, your HRV will increase, but look at all the benefits that you've developed in terms of managing your system. Um, I love that. I I wanted to pick up on the VO2 max, the point that you made there. So if we're looking at somebody who is going to incorporate as part of this um, development, this training, the cardiorespiratory training, what would they be doing? Would they be doing exercise? What, what, zone, what heart rate zone would they be working within? Or is it a combination of different zones to achieve that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So I think that we have the most evidence for increasing VO2 max is really going to come predominantly from anaerobic training. Um, so doing a lot of high intensity interval training, high intensity repeat training, Tabata sets. I think there is a lot of research to indicate that that is one of the, if not the most primary components or things that you should include if you're trying to increase overall VO2 max. However, what I will say is that we are having, uh, we're finding more and more research to indicate that zone two training in combination with high intensity interval work, so zone two plus zone five, that that combination is extremely powerful. So there's individuals, um, there's one individual, uh, Dr. Anigo San Milan, who's out of uh, the University of Colorado. He's been on Peter Atia's podcast multiple times, probably known as kind of like the preeminent zone two researcher, Um, kind of his go-to strategy uh, is anywhere from three to four times a week um, at around 35 to 45 minutes minimum, 60 minutes is kind of like the good sweet spot is what people should be doing in regards to that zone two uh, range. Now, if anybody's wondering, well, what does zone two mean? So zone two, there's kind of like two ways, actually there's like four or five ways to find out what zone two is, but there are kind of some general rules of thumb. One would be is doing a moderate, low to moderate intensity type of exercise to where you could hold a conversation with someone while you're engaging in that exercise. Will it be comfortable? No, no. Zone two conversations, I've tried it. They're not comfortable, but I can have them. Uh, They're a little bit strained. I feel winded when I'm doing it, but I can have them. That's one way of doing it. That's kind of like, you know, you know, the poor man's quote unquote way of finding out what zone two is. The other way would be doing by heart rate zones. And that just depends on overall age, what's your max heart rate, and then working at a percentage window within zone two. Um, and I don't have the charts on me right now of what that percentage of, of the, the upper thresholds of your this one's quite difficult, I find though, because if I plug in that data okay. and I and I use my age, I'm 46, then what happens is it puts me in a zone where I'm definitely not finding conversation difficult. In actual fact, it's very easy. And so I think, can this really be Mm -hmm. zone two? This feels like I'm just going for a walk. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit odd. And which is why I use the most expensive mechanism for doing it, but the one that's going to keep you like accurately in zone two, which is actually measuring lactate um, post-workout. So you can get a lactate meter. These are not cheap things. So I just like to, I like to throw this out there. Like, I don't think that if, I, I think that people are probably going to get, you know, somewhere within the range, if they use a heart rate zone or some level of heart rate zone, 
um, that they'll probably get pretty close, but this is like the mechanism for like I'm spot on. Uh, this is more like the clinical mechanism for knowing zone two, which is looking at whether or not you exited your lactate threshold um, or if you stayed within that zone through a lactate meter. But again, these are like four to $600. And then each test strip for lactate is like six bucks. So it's like you're doing this. Yeah. Yeah, three or four times a week. You can see it really adds up. So, unless you just have, you know, what's interesting on that? Uh, sorry, to quite a question. What's interesting on that is that on when I look at genetic testing, the test I use, it's actually now gone off uh, some approval, medical I think approval. They actually give you the lactate, your um, how much lactate you produce and what, how quickly you clear it. And again, that's interesting mm. because I was somebody who produced lower levels and cleared it faster. So I wonder how that would affect things as well. Yeah, I'm sure it would. I'm not. I'm not sure that I could speak uh, intelligently enough to yeah. know uh, because it's probably no, not my, my my domain. But yeah, super interesting. So I spent a long time trying to find years, in fact, a greens powder that I actually liked the taste of, and I finally found one that basically tastes amazing on its own or actually mixed into shakes, which is pretty unusual because some of them taste kind of really minty and that overpowers everything else. Whereas this one just tastes really, really nice. And it mixes well with banana and protein powder. Uh, It also mixes really well with a strawberry protein I've been using and it just works super well just on its own on an empty stomach. And that is Athletic Greens. It has prebiotics, probiotics, and naturally occurring enzymes that boost digestion, has your daily dose of vitamin C and zinc, healing mushrooms, magnesium to help you regulate all day energy and support um, energy production in our cells. And it's packed with superfoods, adaptogens, and antioxidants. And I absolutely love it. And the cool thing is you can get one year supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs when you get your order of Athletic Greens. All you need to do is go to this special link, athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster to bag yourself a year's supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, so zone two and zone five, and there is there's lots of things we can link to insurance in terms of how people can easily, without necessarily getting a lactate meter. Um, also, we were talking there. You mentioned around the um, the vagus nerve. One thing that is interesting, and I haven't seen a lot of research in relation to this yet, um, and I don't know whether you've looked into it at all, um, but is that there seems to be when you these these wearable devices that a lot of people are using in women will notice in the luteal phase. So after ovulation, that actually their HRV doesn't look as good. Their resting pulse is a bit higher. Obviously, bed, body temperature increased around ovulation. The breathing rate seems to go up. And it's kind of a paradox because it seems that progesterone is very calming on the brain. But whether these devices are not yet sophisticated enough, it's not clear to me why it's having that impact. And I was just curious, because I think probably the answer is more research is needed, but what you found in relation to that? The the answer, 1,000% is that more research? More research, yeah. Absolutely. There are some things about the human, about the human physiology about neuronal functioning and the potential disconnects between the central nervous system and the autonomic nervous system, especially for women who are going through these phase shifts that we, we just do not understand 
understand. And it's these weird, just human physiology paradoxes that are quite fascinating that I know for a fact there are multiple institutions that are looking at why are these shifts happening uh, that we just don't have the answer for. You know, if, if we are seeing that during the luteal phase, that heart rate is increasing, respiration is increasing, then we know that both of those combined, especially with an increase in body temperature, are very similar to what will happen when somebody who is experiencing a nervous system that is being overly taxed. And so therefore, heart rate variability would go down. However, if we do then have kind of like this almost like competing evidence that individuals are releasing uh, neurochemicals and neuromodulators that are therefore either causing more of a calming effect or at least should be causing a calming effect, then like, where is this disconnect? I think that's kind of the problem that we're trying to solve. There's the gap. It's like, how do we have one essentially like system, the central nervous system responding one way and the autonomic nervous system responding a different way? Like what's at the middle of it? Like what's there that's either causing this mm. disconnect? And then what's the reason from an evolutionary perspective, from a physiological perspective, from any type of perspective, what's going on there? I don't know. It's a great question. So, <laughs> excuse me, more research uh, should be had there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And before we go into uh, how uh, people can start to regulate this and, and use the app, just one last question just to kind of set the, the scene really for, for individuals listening is, what are the benefits of them doing this? I know, like, I, I love watching your content on Instagram and you talk about how important this is, you know, in terms of training. And I always say to people, as part of my shift protocols, you know, that the last T is training the body and the mind, and that includes the nervous system. What benefits? Why would somebody put effort into, you know, conditioning their nervous system? And, and what can they expect from a mindset perspective, a decision-making perspective, a health and longevity perspective? What are some of the benefits that, that would, you know, people think, well, actually, yeah, it's really worth putting the effort into this? One of the single greatest detriments to the human body, the thing that has the most deleterious effects on well-being and on longevity is when we experience a stressor, which is inevitable, something that could be utilized for good depending on how we kind of take that stressor and take that experience and then shift our focus. Uh, but the problem is, is that for most people, it is something that derails us from a psychological and a physiological perspective. So many people that I see experience a stressor that for the most part should be benign to the body, uh, but becomes quite malignant. And the reason it becomes quite malignant to the body is because it has compounded over time, whether it's work stressors, whether it's relational stressors, you know, whatever, whatever it is, even an overtaxing of the body due to physiological stress, working out, overexposure to uh, zone five training or sauna or cold exposure, a lot of things that, you know, the biohacking community are really into right now. Uh, these things can work for us, but if they're unaddressed or if we don't see how they're significantly affecting our physiology, well, then we might be missing something pretty big. We might be walking around completely draining our adrenals, completely draining our HPA axis, and completely draining our resources from a nervous system perspective. So, you know, I I, I kind of like the old adage of like what gets what gets measured, you know, gets wait, what's that? What's the what's the old adage? I was going to say it's what what gets measured. And if you can't change, yeah. Oh, the other way. It's so you can't change what yeah. you. Yeah, you can't change what you don't measure. 
Yeah. And, and I think that, and I think that does hold true to the nervous system. A lot of people don't realize the effects of stress until they finally just burn out. And they're like, well, I didn't see that coming. Well, you could have seen it coming if you were measuring it. Um, or if you were more self-aware, which is really what Hanu does. It trains two different things. How do we become more self-aware of how stress physiological and psychological, it manifests in the same way. How do we uh, become more self-aware of what is affecting us and how it's affecting us? And then how do we better self-regulate? Those are the two primary key components that we really must address. And the reason that we must address those is because, again, we don't want to eventually get down the road and we completely burn out. And now we're talking about like Mount Everest is in front of us in order for us to get back to just feeling normal or our baseline. We want to catch it when it happens and then regulate it when it happens. Because if we condition a response that is different than our normal response, maybe our normal response response to stress is avoidance, or maybe it's uh, getting overly kind of like indulging in work, or overly indulging in food, or overly indulging in whatever it is uh, that's maybe not so great or adaptive to us. We create these, be habit, uh, these habits and behaviors that allow us from a cognitive perspective to just avoid doing any of the real self-regulation work because we have other things that are quote unquote effective in helping us to regulate our nervous system when in fact, they're actually quite bad for us. They're quite maladaptive for us. So if we take the approach that when our nervous system takes a hit and we use that stress for good, so this is a mindset thing, or we transition to self-regulating through biofeedback or exercises or meditation or whatever type of approach really is effective for us, then we're conditioning the ability for our bodies and our physiology to respond that way when it occurs again and again and again, as it inevitably will. One thing that I want to point out, uh, because I think it is something that's not mentioned very frequently, is that stress inherently is a good thing. Stress is not bad. Stress at its core is actually there to serve as a warning sign. It is a warning sign to say, hey, this is something that is potentially threatening to you. This is something that could potentially harm you. Do you want to use this? Um, do you want to flee away from it? Or do you want to fight it? These are kind of like our, our ways of dealing with the stressor that's in front of us. And we have to make the decision on how we encounter that stress. Do we allow it? Do we make the decision to allow it just to consume us and really affect us negatively? Or do we say, yeah, I get it. It sucks. Like this thing is really tough. It's really difficult. But the only way for me to continue to make myself tougher is to develop these self-regulation skills because we know that if we do this over and over and over again, this is going to increase our overall emotional regulation. It's going to increase our self-control. And we know that these, those two components, emotional regulation and self-control are very much intertwined with where our heart rate variability is, but also longevity. Um, so longevity is, is the one thing that I think a lot of the health and wellness and biohacking community is really focused on, but they don't focus on this component of self-regulation and self-control, and they don't focus on this component of emotional regulation and how important that is. Some are, but I think other people are really focusing on, oh, nutrition or exercise or you know, whatever else is kind of more sexy than putting in the work of breath work and biofeedback and emotional regulation. So sorry, yeah. it was a bit of a long-winded answer. No, I'm grateful for it. And I think it's it really interesting. And I think um, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's a really, really fundamental thing to do. Um, so Hanu, 
which you co-founded. Really exciting because actually this this gives you the ability to regulate and understand what's affecting your nervous system in real time. We were we were talking just before the show, weren't we, even about things like food and how I'd had some whey protein concentrate yesterday that I don't normally have and I know I'm not I don't tolerate it very well and how that how unwell that made me feel and how that would have effectively affected my nervous system. So really I'm excited for you to share more about Hanu because it sounds like this is a direct mechanism. And what I see, just so people understand, like we can do, I do quite a lot of um, testing with the, the Dutch test where we look at the sex hormones and we look at stress and we look at dopamine and epinephrine and norepinephrine and all these things and cortisol and whether the body has moved into a that burnout stage or whether it's a stage before and it's kind of defending itself or whether you're regulating your nervous system effectively. You can't just go and keep doing that test every week or every day, whereas this is giving you feedback. So when you've got a set of results, it's, I think, a great way of actually working on something uh, and seeing the upward trajectory. Can you explain, like, what is HANU and how is it going to help people? Yeah, so HANU actually came out of us wanting to when i say us i mean myself and the the other two co-founders of the company us we identified that there was a gap in the wearable market Uh, we saw that if we think about what are the pillars of health and again this is a way oversimplification but i think it helps to kind of paint the picture is that we saw that when we think about the pillars of health we think about nutrition we think about the wearable market for nutrition we're really talking about metabolic health so things like continuous glucose monitors are really helpful in that domain we think about fitness we think about exercise we have companies like fitbit whoop garmin who excel there then we think about sleep that's another primary pillar so aura is kind of really known as being a, a front runner in that market we have plenty of other really great companies biostrap and whoop and, and other companies who do sleep staging and then the other one is stress and we think about the stress component. We're like, well, what does, how does the wearable market address that? Well, they kind of dabble in it with HRV, but they're really looking at it from a recovery perspective. So how is the nervous system recovering during your night of sleep, which is your, your prime time for recovery, uh, which can give an insight into stress and stress recovery, but is there a better way of measuring it? Um, and is there a way of providing information that not just gives you data so that you say, oh, well, there's my data point, uh, but says, here's what you can actually do with that data. It gives you practical application because it's one thing to put on a device and in the morning it says, yeah, you slept like crap, but now it's like, well, what do I do with that? Like, mm-hmm. how do I make that applicable? How do I make that actionable? That's where we're like, yeah, the wearable market doesn't do a great job there. Oh, I didn't recover well. Well, what do I do? Like, how should my day look today so that I can focus on actionable steps for recovery? Well, it's not really there. So we said, okay, well, let's do that for stress. Not only will we make a wearable and a platform that's intended to measure stress to give people better self-awareness of stress of when they're experiencing stress and during that context, but let's also give them something actionable that they can do about it where they'll see results, not later or down the road, but instantaneously. And I think that is kind of the primary focus for us. So what Hanu is, it is a continuous daytime wearable that is intended to monitor fluctuations or changes in the human stress response all throughout the day. And we do so through three continuous data capture points. Number one, 
heart rate variability. We are giving you second by second updates of heart rate variability. So you don't just get one singular score like you would with other wearables. It changes all throughout the day. It changes second by second because that's how heart rate variability works. Two, continuous heart rate. Three is continuous respiration rate because we know that when people experience stressors, that breathing inherently changes. It's one of the first things to change that also then affects heart rate variability and heart rate. So we know when someone experiences a stressor, they can do one of two things generally. One, the respiration rate goes way up from their baseline. Two, it can go way down because a lot of people when they get stressed, what do they do? They hold their breath. Mm. They hold it. So we see respiration rate go way down. So what we like to do is we like to track these types of, of fluctuations and then put them within their context. So what does Hanu look like from a user experience? Well, when you're on our home screen, you see a running stream of where your heart rate variability is at that given moment, where your heart rate is at that given moment. And you also see what we call our stress resiliency score. It is a composite aggregate score that takes in three variables into consideration. The ones I mentioned, heart rate variability, heart rate, and respiration rate. And it is a score that looks at how resilient resilient is your nervous system at that given point or how taxed is your nervous system at that given moment that you're looking at it. It is a score unlike other scores that it, again, it will modulate throughout the day, depending on where those metrics are at that given moment. So it's not just like, Hey, you get your readiness score in the morning and that's it. And that's uh, you, you know, good luck with the rest of your day. No, you can actually use that as a guide or as a gauge to based on and the time of day and what you're doing. What this actually, again, looks like from a user experience is that when you wear it, we find your baseline range of heart rate variability and heart rate and respiration rate. We say, okay, what is your upper ceiling? So where's your upper high average? And then where's your bottom shelf, your low average? And then where is kind of just your general right in the middle average? And your goal throughout the day is really for you to maintain as much consistency within your baseline range as possible. Now, I was mentioning to you, Angela, offline before we got on here, is that there are some striking similarities to how heart rate variability within our application works to like a CGM. Is that within when you're wearing a CGM or a continuous glucose monitor, you want to really limit kind of these strong fluctuations throughout the day uh, of, of, of glucose. We know that from a health, well-being, longevity, and metabolic perspective, we don't want significant fluctuations that are going all throughout the day through, you know, snacking and through, you know, really poor meal choices, like those really affect overall metabolic health. We know the same thing with heart rate variability is that we don't want to see these crazy drops and fluctuations, especially when we're not moving, when we're kind of engaging like you and I are right now, when we're just kind of really uh, in a quote unquote relaxed position. Uh, we, we want to see really good stability. Uh, a great phrase to remember when you're wearing Hanu is that normal is better. So when I say normal is better, is that we don't want to say, you know, an overly high HRV is better. That's not tip. That's not necessarily correct. Uh, raising your HRV is a really good thing, but just continuously going throughout your day, you just want to stay normal. You just want to stay within your range. But what we do is that when you drop below your baseline range, below that lower shelf for a period of time, we'll actually alert you. We'll push a notification to you saying, it looks like something's a little bit off with your nervous system. And then you're able to log that event. We call that a life event within our app. And you can choose the category. Well, maybe you were writing emails and you were having email apnea. This is a big one for a lot of working professionals. They'll be writing emails and they'll unconsciously hold their breath because they're tense. Um, they're doing work that's tense. And their HRV will tank, their heart rate will go up, 
It's not a great thing for the body to experience that over and over and over again. And the reason it's not great for the body to experience that is because you are dysregulating your autonomic nervous system and you're dysregulating your central nervous system, your brain and spinal cord at the same time, because this is causing dysfunction within the HPA axis. It's causing these unnecessary cortisol releases. It's causing this dysregulation in adrenaline and noradrenaline. These are things that uh, are causing dysfunction throughout the day, especially as you experience uh, it over and over and over again, just like you don't want to experience crazy fluctuations in glucose over and over and over again. And then what we do, which is, I think the best part about this is that when we see things are not looking normal from a range perspective, you can do that life event, you can log it and you can track it over time. You can look at, oh, over the course of the last week, the thing that was really impacting me was my commute home. Or the thing that was really impacting me was work relationships or you know whatever you know the, the category is. And then we give you the opportunity to train resiliency in that given moment through biofeedback or through breath work. And, and the great thing about it is that you can see when you engage in the practice, you can see where you started from an HRV perspective, and then you can see where you ended. And this is a great mechanism for demonstrating how effective that strategy was during that given time. So yes, you get to see the efficacy of your breathwork practice and how it affected your physiology in a positive way. But then also too, what we know is that we're conditioning a response. So when someone experiences um, a stressor, if we then come every single time or as often as we can, if we approach it with a way of self-regulating, the body and the brain starts to associate that practice with that type of stressor. So now we're finding that when we start to catch ourselves holding our breath, when we're doing email, email or we're having email apnea, we immediately find that our body starts to slow its breathing down naturally to combat the oh, negative effect of email apnea. Yeah. That's and interesting. So, so training almost like where, when the way you give, like I always say to people with sleep, you know, you think about it with your children and you do a routine that conditions their nervous system that helps them produce melatonin, gets them ready for bed because you put them in a warm bath, you read them a story, you give them a cuddle with young children. You forget to do this as an adult or even with teenagers, but pretty soon with that young ch child, the moment you put them in the bath, their nervous system is being conditioned to expect bedtime. So what you're saying, I think, is that now when you've identified that as a stressful situation where you might hold your breath, you might feel some agitation, if you've started to do that training over time, your body will naturally start to take a few deep breaths when you're in that state doing email. Is that what you're saying? That's amazing. That's amazing. Yep. This, yeah, this that's is exactly very cool. kind of the, it, it's the core of biofeedback. And the reason yeah. what, when you look at biofeedback studies, the intention, yes, is to train self-regulation. But what we see as the larger intention is a conditioning of a response. We know that the more and more we do something, the more and more the body naturally conditions that as our habitual response. So think about sleep. I think this is one of the primary things. If you train your body to go to sleep at a certain time every single night and to awaken at a certain time every single morning, you find that, well, what do you not need? You don't need an alarm clock anymore because your body naturally is conditioned to do it. The same exact thing happens when we condition our autonomic nervous system and our central nervous system to respond to events the same way every time. And that's why I say like Hanu is so incredibly important, not because of the self-awareness component. That's great. Like it's really good for something to help catch us during the day when we're fast paced and we're going, going, going for something to remind us, uh-oh, like that's affecting us in a way that's not great for our body to experience. 
that's good and all. But I don't think it means nearly as much if we don't then condition the response of self-regulating. Because if we just continue to become alerted, well, we might become more aware of it happening. But if we're not self-regulating that response, well, then I don't think we're getting nearly as much bang for our buck. Because if we then do the conditioning, if we put in the hard work of breathing slowly, then what that then will do eventually is help that to become such a habitual response that you can look back in retrospect and say, oh, wow, yeah, that was a stressful situation. I see how my body ramped up, but wow, I went and I, my body kicked in a high gear. I just started breathing slowly. I really affected change without me having to consciously think about it because initially you'll have to consciously think about slowing your breathing down, regulate your heart rate, regulate your physiology. But what you want to do is you do it so much that it becomes unconscious. You're your own mechanism for biofeedback instead of having to rely on any type of tech to do it. That's amazing. And what about, could you, um, could you use this to become effectively like more productive to have more flow because I'm doing like a lot of content creation uh both in terms of like video and writing at the moment and I've I've identified I'm just curious how much this can help me with my with my time of day for example so like I I'm very much a morning person and I find that meditation followed by exercise is the thing that really primes my state. So I'll do those very early in the morning. And then I have about 90 minutes of just ultra work. Like I can't ultra flow. I just cannot replicate that at any other time in the day in quite the same way. And I, that that primer just works so super well. I'd love to find a way, I guess, maybe tracking this of what's going on there. And how could I, could I then replicate that for another 90 minutes during the day? Like by using it. It's so you and I are so alike in that accord, Angela. I am like a oh, like in the morning, like I I normally will work out around 6 30 in the morning, so fairly early. Uh, and then when I come in to my office, especially after I've worked out, I've done a sauna session, I've downregulated my nervous system, like for the next like hour, two hours, it's generally like around two hours. Like my mind is so focused, um, mm-hmm. especially I'll put on like the do not disturb on the phone and I'm just, I am so fully in. And then for me, it's like around two or three in the afternoon where I feel like, oh man, like the really pointed focus is not nearly as there as much as it is like in the morning. And so what I've been trying to do is shift my focus and my training kind of with my data. What I mean by that is that in the morning time, I use a lot more, um, I guess you could say like mechanisms for upping the nervous system, for ramping it up, for engaging in kind of sympathetic output uh, through exercise, through sauna exposure. And these help me kind of generally in the morning. Whereas for me, a lot of the times I will find that in the afternoon when I'm becoming more fatigued, I've had more time for uh, norepinephrine and epinephrine to be released in the bloodstream kind of consistently throughout the day. I find that like just this kind of overflux of like sympathetic output is now at the point where I really need to down-regulate. So in the afternoon, I typically choose to do things that are less analytical, um, less kind of like pointed and like I can get it done and check it off and are a little bit more creative in my schedule uh, because that tends to be where my brain goes. But then also too, I utilize a lot of these down-regulation techniques. So for me, what does that look like? It looks like a lot of slow-paced breathing. It looks like a lot of uh, breath holds. I mean, a lot of kind of CO2 tolerance type trainings to increase overall vagal output. 
it helps me to get in a much more creative mindset for my afternoon focused work. So like for me, I just have a certain, certain type of work that I do in the morning and then a certain type of work I do later in the afternoon or evening um, that are generally not a lot alike. Um, and I like to do my harder, more analytical, like, get, like this is the stuff that has to get done things in the morning and the afternoon, it's a little bit more flexible. So a lot of me, it's kind of how I schedule my day, but then I also too just ensure that I downregulate my nervous system as much as possible. I will say though, that there's a caveat to this for some people postprandial after a, after lunchtime, uh, especially depending on what they eat. Uh, let's say if they eat, you know, a nasty standard American diet meal, well, they're going to get super sluggish in the afternoon and they're actually going to have way too much, uh, parasympathetic output and feel that just like crazy, just dive in energy. Um, they'll actually see sometimes heart rate variability go up in the afternoon because they are just like overly relaxed. They might be sitting on their phone and not getting a lot done. For those individuals, I would say, well, number one, change your diet. But number two, like if you're thinking about this from a nervous system perspective, um, being in an overly parasympathetic state in the afternoon might actually not work to your advantage. You might need to amp your nervous system up, which is why it's so incredibly important to eat a really good meal around lunchtime, if that's the thing you do, if you eat lunch at lunchtime. But really also to use your data and your subjective feel as good metrics. If you see that after lunch, wow, yeah, my nervous system is really relaxed. It's good, but I'm not able to focus. Well, you might want to amp your nervous system up by doing maybe some more cyclical hyperventilation, maybe even integrate some kind of not intense exercise, but integrate some exercise and movement into your day. Do things that really get the brain firing. Um, really well, could you do like Tabata in that situation? Could you, could you decide to do some I intense do, exercise and just really like amp it up? I do it all the time. I do it all the time. So like I have a kettlebell in my office. Um, so I'll do, I'll kind of like rotate push-ups, kettlebell swings, burpees, or maybe some like uh, get-ups. Like there's a lot of things that I'll rotate and just amp the heart rate up, get it up. To, and know, this is, so just so people understand, this is where in the afternoon you've moved into a more parasympathetic state. So you're kind of feeling that sluggishness, that postprandial dip, and mm -hmm. it's hard to motivate yourself. In that situation, doing something like four, seven, eight breathing that, in, you know, enhances GABA is going to be completely the wrong thing because actually you want to really elevate the nervous system, right? So actually Absolutely. some exercise is a good thing or breath holds, things like that, that are quite stimulating on the nervous system. Absolutely. But you have to know what your response is objectively and subjectively. Yeah, instance, which Hanu will show you. You got it. I have a colleague yeah. of mine who like after lunch, like like morning's awful for him. Like he is sluggy okay. mixed slugs. Like it's so bad, but then he eats lunch and he's like ramped up, like good to go. Uh, but for him, like it's so amped up uh, that he's like, I've got to downregulate in order to focus because my mind's bobbling all over the place right. because I'm so amped. Um, and it might be due to the caffeine he's drinking as well, <laughs> but for him, like a four, seven, eight breathing pattern would be phenomenal because now he's able to take something like that's like this and hone in. Whereas like, if you're already like too honed in and you hone in more through this type of breathing, you might just be like, oh, I don't feel like doing anything. I just want to sleep right now. And yeah. that's great for when it's sleepy time and not when it's like productivity time. So it's all about like identifying subjectively, how do I feel? And then where are my numbers? I'm excited to try that because I think um, what you were saying there, what's interesting, though, is sometimes I find, though, the energy just has to be expended. So like in your example of this guy, 
if I, and I was having this conversation actually with Dr. Patrick Porter, you know, the founder of BrainTap. Uh, we yes. did an interview recently and we were talking about how some days I will wake up and say I've got a lot on and some deadlines. I can wake up at 4.30 and go straight into work. And he was he was saying to me, be aware that that is mentally extraordinarily taxing on the brain. You may be hyperproductive, but you're going to fatigue quite quickly. And I noticed that very, very much. So you fatigue and you've got to reboot and do something quite parasympathetic. But on the other hand, if I do, for example, I don't exercise first thing, right? And I just take it a little bit easier in the morning. And somehow I've just, you know, when you're just not quite as on it that day and I don't exercise and then I've missed that window, I will become very agitated and unproductive. And I don't know, like you might say to me, well, you could do a breathwork session. From my perspective, I feel like I have got to go and exercise. Otherwise, as my kids will say, mommy's not such a nice mommy anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Know know thyself, right? We have to know what is effective strategies for us uh, and not just base it solely on kind of where our data are. Uh, I think that data are really interesting guides, but the best guide that we have is our subjective experience and then our prior history of knowing what is effective for us and what is not under certain situations and contexts. So it's all about like, if we can have everything aligned, if the stars align, like that's the best thing. If the data, the subjective experience, if they're all agreeing with one another, well, then now we have just a recipe for amazing success. But really what I say is that like in the end, like always make the decision based on subjective feel over objective feel any day, uh, because like sometimes they're not going to marry up with one another. Um, And then sometimes too, one of the unfortunate things about data and biometrics is that for a lot of people, they could be marrying up in a way, but they may not be able to make sense of the data. Let me give a great, like, for instance of this. So people, when they initially were using Hanu, they said, okay, so if I drop below my baseline, well, that actually means then that my body's experiencing a stressor. Yes, probably. I mean, we actually, and actually we know for sure that if you're HRV drops below your baseline, then your nervous system is being taxed by stress. Could that be physiological? Yes. Could that be psychological? 100%. It could be a combination of both of them. However, there have been some people who have said, well, I was driving and someone cut me off. I felt my body go into like a shock, that real quick type of experience. And when I looked at my Hanu, it didn't drop below baseline. And I would say, yeah, but from where you were, to where but prior to the event, to then the event being done, what happened to your HRV? And they said, well, it didn't drop below baseline, but I saw a stark drop. And I say, yes, like that is what you would see and experience. Every time that we experience a stressor, this is not a bad thing for the body. The body has to mobilize energy and respond accordingly. That's how you stay alive. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that is negative. But even if you're not dropping below your baseline range, if you still see kind of these constant like 50% drops in HRV and then another 50% and another 50%, even if you're staying within your baseline range, we want to avoid those happening all day long. And the reason we don't want those happening all day long, again, even if you're not dropping below your baseline HRV, it's because you're having to mobilize a ton of energy during those small what looks like insignificant moments. And so what we actually have with Hanu is that we're not just looking for when you drop below baseline, we're looking for those drops all day long and we're alerting you to these significant changes. 
even if you're not dropping below baseline range. I know that was a little bit of a tangent in me going off, but I thought that would be really interesting for you yeah, know, your listeners to hear. Really interesting. Uh, because because that's something we want to avoid. I, I keep going back to kind of like the CGM model, but it's, it's very similar in some in some cases. Yeah, very interesting. And I think, yeah, pe- so many people want this consistent output of energy and this just feels like a very, very intuitive way of doing it. It's really helpful. You can track it in real time. Um, I'm excited. I know it's releasing next month, isn't it, August? Right. Um, you have a special discount code for listeners. Jay, please, you've been so generous with your time. Please share where can people find out more about you, about Hanu, and also um, get using this device because I think it's on an amazing kind of entry offer, right, that people can get started with. That's right. Yeah. So you can check us out, www.hanuhealth.com, hanu, H-A-N-U, health.com. And our, our current uh, pricing for our device is $299, which gives you uh, the device and then access to the app for 12 months. However, for all pre-orders, especially if you use Angela's code, which is Angela40, you can get the device for 40% off. So we'll send you the device and then we'll also give you access to the app for 180 bucks for the first 12 months. And then after the first 12 months are done, you can say, yeah, let me renew or let me not renew. But if you choose to renew, we're actually gonna continue to give you 40% off of the retail price. So grandfather you in because you're one of the early adopters. Uh, You're a part of the Hanu tribe. We'll give you 40% off of that as well through that next year. So again, use code Angela4. 40 to give Angela uh, to get that Angela 40% discount, which is something we're never going to run again. So we said we're at, we're running this for a very short window. And then once kind of like the pre-order window is up, which is probably going to be around the September-ish, maybe early October-ish time, 40% off will never happen again. Uh, we'll still provide, you know, things like Christmas specials or New Year specials or whatever, but 40% won't be there. So get in early, uh, get your device early, be one of the first people to experience Hanu and that will be great. You can find us, I really say follow us on Instagram. We put a lot of content out there at Hanu Health. Um, my personal Instagram is at Dr. J Wiles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the social media platforms. And uh, yeah, chat with us. We'd love to hear your questions and we'd love to have people join in with the Hanu tribe. Yeah, amazing. And actually your content on Instagram is just it's incredible and all the science you link to. Oh, and for members of, of the Female Biohacker Collective, I think Jay is going to come in and speak privately to that group. So if you're in the membership, you're going to get a really good inside look at Hanu um, and be able to see really in detail how it works. So amazing. Thank you so much, Jay. We will link to all of that in the show notes. It's been incredible to have you on. And thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the High Performance Health Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the show. And this podcast wouldn't happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support the show and to support me is to head over to iTunes or whichever platform you're listening on and provide us with a five-star review. This really helps us to spread the message wider and help and impact more people to optimize their health and longevity. And if we read out your five-star review, please reach out to us at info at AngelaFosterPerformance.com with your name and your postal address and we will send you a cool biohacking supplement or something else. Thanks again for listening and until next time, keep biosyncing and stay optimized. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources, and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com.
You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body, and lifestyle. 